Well, more and more, it seems that it is a miracle that we communicate at all. That people everywhere invent symbolic noises, scratches on paper to name what we're thinking, and then to offer it to one another. It is one thing, and really miracle enough, that we make words to stand for objects. Window, tree, baby, chipmunk, ice cream. But quite something else to try to talk about things that are not things, but really the surest things we know. Ideas, feelings, memories, relationships, holy ground. Love, that difficult, beautiful, willful, handmade construction is tangible as dirt and just as mysterious and intangible as spirit or goodness or what people call God or the interdependent web of life. Confusingly and wonderfully, most of us are fairly fluent both in metaphorical language and in literal concrete speech. And yet, almost every day, and sometimes several times a day, especially when we are talking across religious ideologies, I wish I had a traveler's dictionary I could carry with me to make sure that I am, in fact, saying what I mean to say and also hearing what someone else has to say, even when they are speaking very slowly and in my native tongue. Which brings me to the title of the platform today, Saving Our Souls Alive. Now, this phrase jumped out at me when I was glancing through a collection of the founder of ethical culture, Felix Adler's writings. He wrote this later in his life, and he was describing the original intent of our movement. And he said, the little group of persons who founded the first ethical society were distinctly religious. We did not take satisfaction in materialism or secularism. We were not merely iconoclasts. Neither were we just altruists in the ordinary sense, saying, let us increase the comforts and well-being of the poor and let that be to us our religion. We set about to save our souls alive. We set out to save our souls alive, wishing I had a traveler's dictionary just then. Soul, we don't often use that word in our movement. Adler is ordinarily referred to as the founder of a non-conforming, radical religious movement. His philosophy and expression of post-Kantian idealism but he was also somewhat of a mystic. And that's the part we don't often hear about. Adler, in fact, did not call himself a humanist because he felt that the, the humanism of his day was too limited in reach. Ethical culture has actually, and of course, embraced humanism 
since his death. But in 1933, the New York Times described him as, and this is a quote, one of the truest modern mystics. And throughout his 40 years of platforms and writings, his philosophy is also metaphoric, even at times a kind of philosophic poetry. When he deals with issues like the exploitation of labor and the importance of meaningful vocation or the abuse of children, he is speaking as a religious philosopher and not just the social reformer that he also was. His language, therefore, is religious in nature. Adler defined the soul as the divine spark in each of us, our core aliveness that comes from living with integrity and purpose. And the soul can either be dormant or alive, and it's the work of our movement, he felt, to figure out the ways to understand the conditions that are required to make our souls flourish. For Adler, the soul was not some static concept. The power of the developing self is realized in the interaction we have with others. The work of the soul, he said, is to be found in reworking oneself. Adler believed that many of, and of course we know that many of the religious perspectives that are out there begin with the assumption that we as human beings do not have it in our power to save our souls and become the kind of fulfilled people we want to be without some help of some divine assistance. But for Adler, each of us has the power to know and to choose the good. And the more we exercise that ability, the more we practice being true to our values and assert the inherent dignity and worth of every person, the more our capacity grows to become the kind of person we want to be. And it is easy to be true to our values, or at least easier to be caring and responsible and generous when things are going well. But at least in my life, to live those values loyally when things get tough or when we're feeling disappointed is a different and much more difficult matter altogether. If we are to live well, if we are li to live at all, we must live in a world that is crowded with both beauty and brutality, suffering and glory all in the same instant. Now, one of the things I really love to do from time to time is to just check in with the web, and there's a site on there that will go year by year, and, and it uh, names the important things that have gone on within a particular year. And so I looked at that and looked to see what's been going on, really, that I might not have been aware of in, in the last few years, and some of them, of course, we all know, but some of them I didn't know. The planet Pluto, for example, was demoted out of our solar system. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of children sang their first songs. That was not in that list. The 300 millionth resident of the United States was born. A 2,100-year-old melon was discovered by archaeologists in Japan. The global economy tanked. And the Ch Channel Island of Sark 
held its first democratic elections, becoming the last European country to abolish feudalism. And for the first time in history, the acorns in Washington, D.C. did not fall from the trees. The fullness of life, breathtaking, heartbreaking, horrifying, complicated, and wondrous, happens all around us all the time. Now, wouldn't it be easier if things were just all good or all bad? If we knew that we were, in the end, all doomed, for example, we might, might just want to be, go ahead and be cranky all the time and just be done with it. But if we knew that we could trust that goodness would prevail, we would act differently. We find ourselves somewhere between our very passionate and human longings and a very arbitrary universe. We all have many options to us, available to us when times are tough. We can go with, if you can't beat them, join them, and simply abandon our ideals and principles in order to make ourselves more comfortable. We can despair. We can retreat into fear, putting our heads down, seeing nothing, standing for nothing, hoping only to escape notice. My favorite, we can sulk because our lives are not more to our liking. Or we can live by the same humane values we've cultivated when life was easier. When Adler talked about saving our souls alive, I believe he meant the human spirit asserting the possi its possibilities again and again rebuilding the connections of communities that have been destroyed, choosing to do justice, even when it would be expedient to do otherwise. It is to see the world as it is and then to commit to doing something about it out of a sheer, stubborn conviction that we can and we must. It is to grieve that our lives and our world are not fair. Grieve for the children dying of malnutrition. Grieve for our hurting planet. And then to gather together and to insist that fairness and equality and a healthy earth are possible and to choose the common good over private gain. For Adler, we cannot seek the salvation of our souls, as he said, and this is a quote, reckless of our salvation of the world around us. Only by committing to serving each other, our community, the city, the state, and the society of humankind can we grow into our larger and truer selves. The poet Hart Crane wrote, you cannot choose your battlefield. The gods do that for you. But you can plant a standard where a standard never stood. How you stand here is important, here and now, in your own time and place. And since you are here this morning and not elsewhere, begin with paying attention now. Resolve to notice the rustle of the trees outside these windows, the light that plays upon those branches and your faces the cardinal that occasionally flies by, the colors, the changes, the wild world watching over our service this morning.
And notice, too, that the sun sets over the house next door as gorgeously as over oceans. And it is begging for your response. Every day, calling you to attention. And your work is to answer. To people, to ideals, to values, to pictures of, in your mind of the children here 20 years from now, the picture that you carry around with you and what you will be like 20 years from now, connect all of that to your soul and plant your standard there. There are, as we all know, so many demands on our time, pulls on our hearts, simple and not so simple conflicts between work and home and home and art and home and service to the wider world, between rest and action, so many ways to fragment a day or a life, and so many ways to unfold or to develop a day or a whole life. You know, the motto of this era for industrious, multitasking, motivated, service-oriented go-getters like yourselves, the mantra that may save our frantic lives is, I am learning to say no. But for what? To what, then, are we learning to say yes? Yes to the things that make us feel most alive. Yes to love and adventure and service. Yes to grief when it comes from having love deeply. Yes to each other's gifts and talents. Yes to friendship and risks that, in the, that inevitably go with friendship. Yes to change when it means a better way. Yes to beauty and laughter. Yes to becoming more than we might have been. Yes to keeping our promises. Yes, to gratitude. What size are, are you, asked the liberal process theologian Bernard Loomer. He wasn't talking about height or weight. Listen to his words carefully. By size, I mean the stature of a person's soul the range and depth of your love, your capacity for relationships. I mean the volume of life you can take into your building, into your being, and still maintain your individuality and integrity. I mean the strength of your spirit to encourage others to become freer in the development of their diversity and uniqueness. I mean the power to sustain more complex and enriching tensions. I mean the magnanimity of concern to provide conditions that enable others to increase in stature. Is that not ethical culture? The ethical society exists as an institution so that we might encourage one another to live larger, more fully human lives. We become, as Adler put it, a living laboratory where we try to live out together the values by which we claim the world ought to be. Values like honoring the worth and dignity of every person. By building the ethical relationships that bring out the best in others and thereby ourselves. By committing to the deed of building a world made whole. 
What brings us together as ethical culturists is in part the acknowledgement of our own hopes and limitations. None of us can ever become the purple we want, people we want to be in isolation. Alone, we have no one to practice our virtues on, no one to remind us when we forget, no one to comfort us when we fail, no one to recognize and celebrate our successes, no one to encourage us when we lose heart. We, or I'll say I, need other people who are striving as we are striving to be more fully human. We need them to compare notes with, to ask questions of, to share our discoveries, to demonstrate that no private failing is ours alone. Adler said that the spiritual nature, the best in each person, does not need to be saved. It needs to be recognized. He said, what ethical religion can particularly hope to give us is a firm sense of direction in all human effort toward fuller realization of the spiritual nature. It can help man to be a better estimate of himself. It can point to the supreme experience of seeing the divine light in the face of another and of having that light reflected upon our own faces. Those were his words. So how do we cultivate the kind of attention that makes us aware of the wholeness that is available to us? One way, I think, is to make it a practice to come here on Sundays, to let go of work, to set aside the busyness of our weeks, to listen for the song or the word or the silence that invites this enlarged awareness. One of Alice Walker's poems has this to say, you do not want to believe someone who tells you when you look at the sky that you see a place with, with couches for the weary and throne-like chairs of rest. Someone serene, saved, playing listless harp. Many of the formerly fallen, well-fed, jolly at last, driving white Cadillacs. You do not need to believe someone who does not want it known that heaven is a matter not of inventing glory, but of recognizing it. That the blue sky with its sunsets and clouds is simply beautiful, and that is enough. The wholeness that we seek is not about perfection. It's not even about happiness or joy. As Alice Walker writes, it is not about inventing glory, but recognizing it in the earth, in the blue sky, in the ground beneath our feet, in the face across from us, in the person sitting next to us. Wholeness is there. It is always present. A couple of years ago in D.C., there was a fascinating experiment conducted by the world-renowned solo violinist Joshua Bell. How many of you have heard him? Yeah. So dressed in jeans and a cap, he anonymously played during rush hour at the entrance to the L'Enfant Plaza metro station. You may have seen this on YouTube. He was playing a violin that is famous, 
so famous that it has its own name. It's called the Gibson X Huberman, and it was handcrafted in 1713 by Antonio Stradivari. The experiment was designed to see how many people during rush hour would stop to listen to this anonymous, world-famous violinist. Now, this is a musician that won the Avery Fisher Prize, which is the most exalted prize in classical music. And each passerby had a quick choice to make. Do I stop and listen? Do I hurry past with a blend of guilt and irritation, aware that I'm hearing some talent, but annoyed by this rude demand for my time and for my wallet? Do I throw in a couple of bucks into his violin case just to be polite? Do I have time for beauty? Chaconin, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, probably not from Johann Sebastian Bach's Partita No. 2 in D minor was among the six pieces that he played. Bell calls it not just one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, but one of the greatest achievements of, many, of any man in history. It's a spiritually powerful piece, emotionally powerful, structurally perfect. Plus, it was written for a solo violin, he said, so I won't be cheating with some half-assed version. It is also considered one of the most difficult violin pieces to master. Many try, but few succeed. It's exhaustingly long, 14 minutes. It was composed around 1720 on the eve, this is so ironic to me, on the eve of the European Enlightenment, and it is said to be a celebration of the breadth of human possibility. In the 45 minutes that Bill played those six compositions, 1,049 people passed by. Only seven stopped for a minute or more, and he received in his violin case $32 and change. To have soul is to be awake to life. It is to be awake to beauty wherever we find it. Awake to beauty not only because it nourishes our souls, but because, as one author said, beauty actually assists us in addressing injustice because it requires constant perceptual acuity. And as she said, high dives of seeing, hearing, and touching. I learned last year that when the first motion picture was shown in France, it was a movie about a train, and it showed a train barreling down on the viewers. As the train in the movie came closer, people began to leave. Actually, they began to run screaming out of there because they had not been perceptually prepared for this new phenomenon. So think now of the TV shows that we watch every day, the shows that our children watch or stumble upon. We passively watch all those horrible images almost every day. We've slowly allowed ourselves to become anesthetized and indifferent. As the slow paralysis of, survive, of surprise. And he calls it evil's most dangerous form. 
We are conditioned in this culture to passively look at threats that come to us. But here, in this community, we believe that we cannot allow other people to define our or our children's reality. We cannot allow ourselves and our children to sleepwalk through life. Rebecca Parker says, estranged from soul, we neither laugh nor cry. We neither savor nor save the world. We do need to save our soul alive, save our souls not from an evil world or from our own sinful natures, as some would say, but from complacency, apathy, anything that keeps us from being in right relationship with one another, anything that keeps us from being astounded by our own lives and grateful for every one of the short days that we have on this little planet. Ethical culture teaches that we can help heal our deadened souls. We can do this for one another. And we do it all the time here, through our hospitality and our laughter, through acts of kindness and care, through our deep listening and our hugs and through our tears. Here we can find a place where we are welcomed in all of our humanity. So in closing, I was thinking, as I was beginning to put this platform together, of all the platforms I have given over the years. And I realized that no matter what I name them or how I phrase the words, they are really only about three themes. Pay attention. Show gratitude. Take hold of one another. It's been the same platform, really, over and over. Those three themes, pay attention, be grateful, take hold of one another, are what will save our souls alive. And they are, in fact, the words I most need to hear. <laughs>